Recently, I read that every single month, millions of people search the internet for answers to their deepest hurts and longings, and maybe you're one of them. Google alone sees more than 7 million queries on the topic of loneliness. More than 22 million Americans ages 12 and older abuse or are addicted to drugs and alcohol. Somewhere around 21 million Americans, that's 7% of the nation's population, struggle with depression and 30,000 commit suicide every year. An estimated 40 million people in the United States feel trapped or crippled by fear. And they live as prisoners to their own anxiety. And the list goes on and on. And the upshot of it all is that people are anxious. If those statistics point to anything, it's that people are anxious. They're worried. I'm searching. I'm worthless. I'm hopeless. I'm afraid. These are the cries which emanate from their hearts. They are anything but hopeful, joyful, or at peace. But peace of heart and mind can be found. An old prophet by the name of Isaiah once described it and declared it like this. In Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 3, he says, You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. You believe that verse to be true? It's one of my favorite authors and preachers has written, rather than looking at the known blessings that God provides for us today so abundantly, so consistently, we end up worrying about the unknown and the uncertain events of tomorrow. Invariably, when we focus on the wrong things, we miss the main thing that life is all about. That fact is vividly illustrated in one of his favorite stories, and after more than 40 years of marriage, this woman's husband suddenly died, and for several months she sat alone in her house with the shades pulled and the doors locked. Finally, she decided she needed to do something about her situation. The loneliness was just killing her. So she remembered that her husband had a friend who owned a nice pet store. A pet might be good company, she thought. So she dropped in one afternoon to look over the selection that he had, and she looked at dogs and cats and goldfish, even snakes. You want a snake? Nothing seemed quite right. She told the store owner she wanted a pet that could be a real companion to her and almost like another human being in the house. Suddenly he thought of one of his prized parrots. And he showed her the colorful bird. And she said, does it talk? Absolutely, he's a real chatterbox. Everybody who comes in the store is astounded by this parrot's friendly disposition and wide vocabulary. That's why he's so expensive. Sold. So she bought the expensive parrot, hauled it home in a large, elegant cage. At last, she had the companion that she could talk to who could answer back. Perfect. So it's going to be great. But there was a slight problem. Full week passed without the bird saying one word. Beginning to worry, she dropped by the pet shop. How's the parrot doing? Quite a little talker, isn't he? Not one word, she said. I haven't been able to get a sound out of that bird, and I'm worried. 
Well, did you buy a mirror when you got the parrot last week in the, with, you know, with the cage last week? Mirror? No, there's no mirror in that cage. Well, that's your problem. The parrot needs a mirror. So it's funny, but while looking at itself, a parrot starts to feel really comfortable. In no time, it'll begin to talk. So she bought the mirror and put it in the cage. Time passed. Still no, no talking. Nothing. Each day the woman talked to the bird, but not a peep came out of its beak. And for hours on end, she would talk and talk and talk to the parrot, and the parrot stared back at her in complete silence. Another week passed without a word. By now she was really getting worried. The parrot isn't talking, she told the pet store owner. I'm worried. All that money, the mirror, still nothing. Say, did you buy a ladder when you got that cage? A ladder? No, I didn't know it needed a ladder. Will that make it talk? Works like a charm. Parrot will look in the mirror, get a little exercise, climbing up and down the ladder seven times, several times. Before long, you won't be able, you'll believe what you're going to be hearing come out of this parrot's mouth. Trust me, you need the ladder. So she bought the ladder, and she put it in the cage next to the mirror, and she waited, and she waited, and she waited. And another seven, eight days, still nothing. By now, her worry was approaching the panic stage. Why doesn't it talk? That was all she could think about. She returned to the store in tears, and the same complaint came out. And the pet store owner said, did you buy a swing? A swing? No, I haven't bought a swing. I have the cage. I got a mirror. I got the ladder. I thought I had everything. I had no idea I needed a swing. You gotta have a swing, he said. Parrot needs to feel completely at home. It glances in the mirror, takes a stroll up and down the ladder. Before long, it's on the swing, enjoying life. And bingo, I found that parrots usually talk when they're perched on a swing. So the woman bought the swing. She attached it to the top of the cage near the ladder, coaxed the parrot up the ladder and onto the swing. Still, absolute silence. For another 10 days, not one sound came out of that cage. Suddenly, she came bursting into the pet store. Now she's steaming mad. The owner met her at the counter. Hey, how's the parrot? I'll bet it died, she said. My expensive bird is dead at the bottom of the cage. And the owner says, well, I can't believe that. I'm just shocked. Did it ever say anything at all? Yes, said the woman. As a matter of fact, it did. As it lay there, taking its last few breaths, it said very faintly, don't they have any food at that store? <laughs> There's no greater waste of our time and no greater deterrent to our joy than worry. She's worried about all the wrong things and forgets the main thing. And by turning our attention to the wrong things, worry leads us to live our lives for the wrong reasons. And you know what? It grieves God's heart. We need to feed our minds on the right things. And last time we were together, we learned that maintaining the right attitude brings the peace of God to guard us. That's what we find out in Philippians chapter 4 and verses 4 to 7. Let me refresh your memories. If you turn there, Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7. Let me read that to you. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. 
Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's what we looked at last week, remember? Okay, so what are those things that help us maintain the right attitudes which bring the peace of God to guard us. So let me go through them again with you really quickly. Number one, Paul says in verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So be joyful. We said that joy is a pervasive sense of well-being. Okay, that's Dallas Willard's words. And if you want to know what that looks like, just watch a child before they get to know what it's like to worry about things. Child, a child has a pervasive sense of well-being, right? I listened to John Ortberg tell a story about his daughter recently that kind of drove this idea home about joy being this pervasive sense of well-being when all around you is probably not so good. John said, we would punish our child by putting her in the timeout chair when she was, when she was small and she was bad, and she just sat there grinning. And it drove us nuts. And he said, we finally asked her, what are you doing? And she said, I'm thinking in cartoons. <laughs> thinking in cartoons. That's a pervasive sense of well-being, if, if you ask me. She's in the timeout chair, but all she can do is grin. Show patience was the next thing that we saw in verse 5. Let your gentle spirit or your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. The word forbearance there or gentle spirit carries more of an idea of humility. The third thing he said was don't worry in verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. And that works into the next thing, which is keep praying. Keep praying. Don't worry about anything, but... Rather, pray about everything through supplication, prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We need to pray with thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18 say very similar things to what Paul says in Philippians. He said to the Thessalonians, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God says, don't worry about anything, pray about everything all the time, and by the way, be thankful. When you have the right attitude and it's rooted in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord always, the peace of God, Paul says, will guard you. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, and it will surpass all comprehension. Like a sentry on a watch, the peace of God gives us a settled spirit, a pervasive sense of well-being, and a settled mind. It prevents anxieties from growing within and doubts from entering in from without. Matt Chandler said it this way. He said, the gospel is grounds for unassailable joy. If the gospel is true, it puts eternal stability into the hearts of all who believe it. But you've got to believe it. But Paul doesn't end it there. It's not enough, Paul says, to maintain just the right attitude about this. We must manifest the right action. And that's what we're going to dive into today. And that's in verses 8 and 9 chapter 4. Manifesting the right action brings the God of peace to guide us. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. Finally, brethren, 
Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence in anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And notice what it says, another promise here, the God of peace shall be with you. This is the climax in Philippians 4 of spiritual stability. What are the right actions that we are supposed to be manifesting? See, now we're talking about spiritual disciplines here, okay? Paul says, train yourself. Train yourself to think the right things. Verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, and you just read the list. The way you think determines how you will act. Is that right? Verse 8, I like to call it God's leash law. It's God's leash law for your mind. He says, put your mind on a leash. Control it. Don't let it run wild. Left on its own, it's going to run to all the wrong places. Where is it going to run to? It's going to run to anxiety, anxious thoughts, worry, unrest. Is that right? So Paul gives us some spiritual food for thought, so to speak. If there was ever a generation that needed to begin to think the right things, I think this one is it. Don't you? The way we think determines how we're going to act. The old saying is absolutely true. Garbage in, garbage out. You believe that to be true? I wonder how many of us believe that to be true. How much garbage we put in. And we think, ah, we can control that. It's not going to come out. It'll come out. How are you disciplining your mind to think the right things? That's the question. Recently, I heard someone give some great thoughts on this. It comes from a message called How to Stop Stress Before It Starts. And the the preacher and the pastor kind of reiterates some thoughts. He says, we are the product of our thought life. You're the product of your thought life. The most important decision you will make in any given moment or day is what you allow to go into your mind and then what you dwell on once it's in your mind. That's one of the most important points of your day. So you need to understand that the world, what the world has understood for a long, long time, you're a product of your thinking. You don't pay $1.5 million for a 45-second commercial on the Super Bowl if you don't think that what you're saying is going to have an impact on people's behavior, right? What you think is what you will end up acting on. Advertisers spend extraordinary amounts of money to get you to think in certain ways, don't they? They get you to think in certain ways that... You need that cosmetic, or you need that kind of car, or you need that kind of handbag, or you need this kind of credit card in order to be happy, successful, well thought of, blah, 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 you fill in the blank. And and you know what? You and I are inundated with this stuff all the time. You can't shut it off. Here's some things that will, are objectively true, that will help you if you 
tend to dwell on these kinds of things. This is an objectively true statement, okay? Think on this one for a while. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. Okay, right? I mean, it's, it's true in agriculture, right? You don't put a seed of, of wheat in the ground and then get a tomato, right? You reap what you sow. The other thing you learn is you never reap. Now, this is an important one, very important one. You never reap in the same season that you sow. Reflect on that. So what you're putting in your mind, what's coming out of your mouth, what you're doing in your relationships, it may not show up right now. But you always reap what you sow. Think about the spiritual implications of what do you sow spiritually in your life right now? What do you put into your mind right now? What are you putting into your mind on a daily basis or nightly basis? Especially if you can't sleep, right? You can't sleep. It's like 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. You get up. Maybe you read for a while and you say, well, you know, I'll just I'll, I'll turn on the TV. Or I'll pull out the iPad or the smartphone, my device, and I'll just check Facebook. And you start watching the ads on TV. And here's the lie. Here's the lie that you find out that you'll, you'll hear preached to you at 2 o'clock in the morning. That there's a quick, quick fix for everything in your life. It'll cost you $19.95. <laughs> right? There would not be that many infomercials if people weren't calling in. Because we think that there's a quick fix to everything. You know, there's a lady here and she looks like this. And then next frame, she's in a bikini. And she goes, you know what? I didn't exercise. I didn't do anything. I just took this little white pill. Twice a day, and it all melted away. You don't have to do anything, right? 1995. But do you understand how much of that quick fix illusion mentality has seeped into your brain? It's not just about those kinds of things. We hear this all the time in every media possible. Example, truth is marriage is a lot of hard work, isn't it? A lot of hard work that leads to great intimacy, right? Hard work with specific tests, painful issues, family of origin, things to address, learning to communicate, learning to resolve your anger. It's very, very hard work. And as you work at it and make it through those difficult times, it bonds you together. It, cre it creates tremendous intimacy, doesn't it? The world would say no. The real intimacy, especially sexual intimacy, 94% of all that you will ever see or hear on a video or on the television is sexual intimacy with someone outside of your marriage. What's the message? The message is all the great intimacy, those deep needs that you have, they're out there somewhere with someone else, and it's going to be a quick fix. You take that in over a period of time and you will find yourself 5 or 10 or 15 years later and you're going to reap what you sow, aren't you? 
You're going to begin to get disenfranchised with what you do have, not thanking God for what he gave you, thinking that the grass is always greener on the other side. I've watched people who have never thought they would have an affair have an affair. People who never thought they would have a sexual addiction on a porn site find themselves there and they can't get out of it. People who thought they never would do this or that or the other thing find themselves in the muck and in the mire and they can't climb their way out. Why? Because you never reap in the same season that you sow. And it's from years and years and years of sowing the wrong seed. That make sense? We're the product of our thought life. You're the product of your thought life. The most important decision that you will make in any given moment or day is what you allow to go into your mind and then what you dwell on once it's in your mind. The person you will become six weeks from now or a year from now is the person of what you're putting into your mind today. And think about that with your kids as their minds are forming in those first six or seven years, and those preteens. You know what this, Ralph Waldo Emerson said it a long time ago. He said, sow a thought and you reap an action. You sow an act and you reap a habit. You sow a habit and you reap a character. You sow a character and you reap a destiny. That's the law of reaping and sowing. And that's in the Bible, by the way. That whole idea. Paul says, fill your mind with these things. He says, fill your mind, think about these things, dwell on true things. What are true things? True things are valid, reliable things. The faulty assumption in the world today is that there is no absolute truth, that truth is relative. The world asks that same old question that Pilate asks, what is truth? The Bible answers that question very clearly in a lot of different ways, but I'll give you two. In John 17, 17, John says, thy word is truth. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the truth. Paul says, dwell on true things. And he says, dwell on honorable things. What's honorable? What are honorable things? Honorable things are things worthy of respect. That's all that means. Things that are worthy of honor. Three, he says, dwell on whatever is right. Righteous things. Worthy of God's approval. Things that have passed God's censorship. Paul says, dwell on these things. Pure things. That is strictly moral purity is what that's referring to. Dwell on what is clean, not what is dirty. What are your thoughts when you look at that man or that woman? What are your thoughts when you're watching that TV show or that Netflix movie? When the circumstances in your life are not going so well later on, you are going to be much more open to immoral temptation if you're not dwelling on pure things. Put your mind on a leash, Paul says, and make it a short one. True things, honorable things, righteous things, pure things, Paul says, dwell on lovable things, that which is acceptable, pleasing, whatever breathes of God's love and kindness. And then he says, dwell on admirable things, things of good repute, 
well-sounding things, attractive, worthy of praise, something worth talking about. What is it that you talk about 90% of your time? Is it worth your breath or is it a waste of breath? That's the question to ask. Is it worth somebody's attention or is it a waste of their time? Listen, if you knew that you had 60 days to live, got it? And some people have heard those words. If you knew you had 60 days to live, would your priorities look like they look right now? Would you watch what you watch? Read what you read? Do what you do? Hang with who you're hanging out with? And if so, way to go. And if not, why not? When are you going to change? Because sooner or later, you're only going to have 60 days to live, and you don't know when that is. I would almost guarantee that it would be life-changing for us to think in those terms. This is the concept of renewal. This is the concept of soul transformation, to dwell on these kinds of things, to discipline your mind, to think the right things. Here's a telling experiment to try. I heard this from Chip Ingram a while ago. A scary experiment, but I dare you to try it. This week, take three days and don't watch any television at night. Don't surf the net on any of your devices. Don't recreationally go on the web. Just use your cell phone as a phone, not a texting device, not an internet searching device, not a movie watching device, just a phone. Okay? Three days. Just three days. You know what's going to happen? You're going to be irritable. <laughs> and you're going to find out, if you make it, that you have time on your hands. And if you're honest, you're going to realize that you have an addiction. People don't realize they're addicted to their devices, but they are. There's something it's doing for you emotionally and you, that you think it's winding you down and putting your brain in neutral, but guess what? It's not really in neutral. Your brain is not in neutral. You're absorbing. You're dwelling on things. You're thinking on things. Try it. See. And what you'll realize is what you could, what could I then put in my brain that would be positive? Refreshing music, a book that I've wanted to read. What if you said now that I have two hours extra every night if I took 10 or 15 minutes and I just memorized this verse? The truth of God's word. That's one idea. Just try something. I challenge you, type up this list of things that we just went over to dwell on and put it by your TV, put it another one by the stack of magazines on your coffee table or nightstand, put another one by your iPad, your smartphone, your headphones or your earbuds, and then only watch, read and listen to the things that conform to this list. 
That's something to try. Operate under the grid of this. Whatever I do here, whatever I put into my head, will I be more or less motivated to follow Christ after I do it? Ask that question. Whatever I do with this thing, whatever it is, will I be more or less motivated to follow Christ after I do it? Ask yourself the question, what kind of person do I want to become? What kind of Christ follower do I want to become? Those are two very serious questions that demand an answer. Because I think Jesus is asking us those questions. And then wherever you want to land after you answer those questions, just keep putting that stuff in your mind that will get you there. You know, the pat answer is, oh, I want to grow in Christ. Pray that I would grow in Christ. Deeper in Him. Well, that's a nice generic prayer. Maybe I should pray that you'll throw your cell phone away. Because that's probably going to be the first step in helping you grow in Christ. Or to open up your Bible and read, whatever it is, go feed the poor or serve the needy. Ask the question, what kind of Christ follower do I want to be? And then keep putting the stuff in your mind that will get you there. If we live that way and tightened up the reins of our minds, I'll bet we'd experience more peace within ourselves and less anxiety. More peace with our circumstances, more peace with our families. And you know what? We would grow immensely in Christ. You want help when you're down and discouraged? Make a list, a think list. List 20 or 30 things that are true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, and admirable. And when you feel like you're going down in, into a, the muck again in your mind and you're getting depressed, read the list over and over. Put them into practice because here's the deal, as John Phillips accurately explains in his commentary. Paul was challenging us to think on, to think out, and to take account of things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and of good report. And where will such thoughts lead us? Directly to Jesus. He's the fulfillment of all of these things. In him, all of these abstracts are translated into a warm and wonderful personality, a noble and inspiring person, a savior, one who can deliver us from our anxieties. We cannot think of Christ ever being anything but true, can we? We cannot conceive of Christ telling a lie or being deceitful or underhanded. We cannot think of Christ being anything less than honorable. And you just fill in the blank with any of these things. He's pure, lovely, good, of good repute, excellent. On this earth, Christ was always just and fair, whether dealing with a fallen woman or a self-righteous Pharisee. How lovely Christ was when he walked the earth. See, before laying the choices and challenge of Philippians 4, 8 before us, Paul penned two words at the end of verse 7. What are they? Christ Jesus, in most of your translations. Christ Jesus. Verse 8 stems directly out of thoughts of Jesus and leads us directly back to thoughts of Jesus. We must 
be thinking and focusing on Christ. That is the ultimate secret of a positive thought life. All unworthy thoughts perish in Christ's presence. Amen? Paul sums it up this way at the end of verse 8. He says, simply choose the right stuff to dwell on. If it is excellent, he says, and this is the most comprehensive Greek term for moral excellence available in the New Testament, in the Greek language. If it is excellent and it is worth praising, then Paul says, it is worth thinking about. You want to know why? Because God is in all of those things. And if God's not in it, it ain't worth it. We're not just parking our minds around ethereal virtues, positive confession, and a litany of good ideas. That's not what Paul's suggesting here. No, far deeper than a seminar on the power of positive thinking, Paul is advocating, what Paul is advocating is that we set our minds on the things that come from Christ, the things that commend Christ, and the things that consummate in Christ. Get that? Things that come from Christ, commend Christ, and consummate in Christ. And if you do that for a month, I'm going to tell you, your life's going to be different. You do it for six months, and your perspective will be different. You do it for a year, and people around you will ask you, what happened to you? You do it for 10 years, and you'll see your kids, you'll see kids coming out differently than they're coming out right now. Because you know why? Because God's going to change you. Romans chapter 12 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of what? Your mind. Dwell on these things, Paul says. Your mind. You will see differently. You will think differently. But it's not enough just to think the right things. Right thinking always leads to right living. Right? Right thinking and right living are necessary conditions for experiencing God's peace and God's presence, Paul says. Look at the bookends that Paul places at either end of the emotional, mental, and the personal, practical things that he's talking about here. In verse 7, after Paul says, rejoice in the Lord, you know, be joyful, don't worry, all these things, be prayerful. Paul says, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Okay? That's the mental, emotional part. Then he gets into the more personal, practical part by thinking on these things and look at what it says at the end of verse 9. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Those are the bookends. And you do with all that is in between those things. So Paul not only encourages us to think the right things, but in verse 9, he's telling us to live the right way. We've got to live the right way, which flows out of the thinking the right things. Look at verse 9. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. What's the word? Practice. Do. Live. Whatever it is in your translation. My translation says practice these things. Practice them. You can't separate inward attitude and outward action. They are two sides to the same coin of life. It's not enough to be joyful, to show patience, not, to not worry, to keep praying. It's not enough just to think the right things. Paul's final command is to do it. 
and do it correctly. Don't forget that. Do it correctly. Paul switches from the emotional mental state of the believer into the practical personal, okay? In doing so, he shows us how you can't separate the two things. Oh, lots of people want to try. One author said this, he said, we divide ourselves so often between the feelers and thinkers and the active doers. The feelers will say things like, oh, why can't we just love? Why do we have to do all this doctrine stuff? Let's just love Jesus. And they sometimes look at people who care about doctrine as cold, as numb, as though they'd be more spiritual if only they just felt what we feel. At the same time, the more intellectual thinkers look with suspicion at those who emphasize love, and they may criticize the feelers by saying, oh, how ridiculous and shallow and weak. They need more theology in their smoothie. Right? What ends up happening is the forming of rival factions that ought to be complementing each other and working together in unity. But instead, they both end up acting with arrogance and ignorance because while God loves innocent, beautiful hearts that love him completely, this really does not negate the fact that we should love him correctly. Amen? To borrow a poignant illustration... Imagine, just imagine with me for a moment, if I were to go home at the end of the day to see my wife. What if I'm just overtaken by her beauty and her gorgeousness? See, I'm feeling the right feelings and I'm thinking the right things. And I just kneel right on the floor before her and I say, baby, I love you so much. My heart, it hurts. I love you so much. I don't just love you, I'm in love with you. And I don't know if it's your silky strawberry blonde hair or your ocean deep blue green eyes or what it is, but just the sight of you is, wow! See, I'm acting the right way, thinking the right things. Some of you might be thinking, oh, that's so sweet, so what's wrong with that? Okay, let me tell you why if I were to do that, it would go very badly with my wife. (laughs) Because my wife has dark brown hair and hazel brown eyes, (laughs) right? So even if my emotions were powerful and appropriate, my wife's going to have a serious problem with how I express them because they weren't correct. See, if you're going to overcome your anxiety and experience the peace of God in your life, it's not going to be enough just to feel appropriate emotions, think excellent thoughts, and act in admirable ways. Those things have to be rooted in the truth. Truth with a capital T. Love rejoices with the truth, 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says. Now remember, as I just finished saying, we're not just parking our minds around ethereal virtues, positive confession, and a litany of good ideas, but on that which is according to truth. We're setting our minds on Christ, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.5. And so Paul encourages us to have the mind of a mature believer. Discipline your mind, Paul says, to what is good and right and true, and then put it into practice in your lifestyle. Think Jesus, live Jesus, right? Verse 9, 
the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Notice the balance here in this verse. These are the four facets of biblical, biblically living as a disciple of the truth. Learning it. Receiving it as it's passed on to you. Hearing it spoken in conversation. Seeing it modeled in front of your eyes. And practicing it in the correct way. I guess that's five. Learn it, receive it, hear it, see it, practice it, Paul says. See, learning and receiving can be done partially through books and letters, but hearing and seeing demands personal contact. It's not enough to have facts in your head. You need truth in your heart and in your life. That's why you can't really grow to spiritual maturity from just reading books and listening to podcasts because we need personal practice and we need powerful examples to follow. No one learns to ski from a book. Try it. It ain't going to happen. You've got to try it, get out on the skis, get out on the mountain, and do it. And it usually doesn't click, actually, until someone actually shows you how to do it and does it with you. And the same thing happens with following Christ. The world doesn't need, trust me, the world doesn't need any more books on how to live the Christian life or how to deal with worry. There's plenty out there. We don't need another e-book on the steps to Christian maturity as much as we need committed people of God to model it before a watching world. How many of you would dare say with Paul in chapter 3, verse 17, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. Because you ought to be able to say that as a believer in Christ. I ought to be able to say that. Paul says, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. That puts some responsibility on us, doesn't it? So what are those things that he's talking about? Have you ever asked yourself what in the world was Paul referring to? Maybe it was the doctrine he outlined. Maybe it was the fact that he pressed on with extreme perseverance. Maybe it was that even though the storm raged on all around him in prison, he could still rejoice in the Lord. Who knows all the things Paul passed on to people throughout his lifetime? I have a notion that it ultimately may have been the fact that Paul lived his life in the eye of the storm. And no matter what the size of the waves were that pummeled him, or what the strength of the winds were that ravaged him, his eye was fixed and his focus was sure. He was trained on Jesus as his lighthouse, which guided him into safety and guarded his heart in peace. That's why he could write what he wrote. From prison. He lived by something called the laws of the lighthouse. I first learned of the laws of the lighthouse through a book entitled In the Eye of the Storm by Max Lucado. Essentially, they can be described as immutable, immovable truths that guide us into safe harbor during the storms of our lives. 
In other words, they have lighthouse characteristics. As Max writes, they warn you of potential danger. They signal safe harbor. They are stronger than the storm. And they shine brightest in the fog. The laws of the lighthouse contain more than good ideas, personal preferences, and honest opinions. They are God-given, time-tested truths that define the way that you should navigate your life. Observe them and enjoy secure passage. Ignore them and crash against the ragged rocks of reality. In U.S. Naval Institute Proceedings, the magazine of the Naval Institute, Frank Koch illustrates the importance of obeying the laws of the lighthouse. Two battleships assigned to the training squadron had been at sea on maneuvers in heavy weather for several days. I was, a, I was serving, the writer says, on the lead battleship and was on watch on the bridge as night fell over us. The visibility was poor with patchy fog, so the captain remained on the bridge to keep an eye on all activities. Shortly after dark, the lookout on the wing reported light bearing on the starboard bow. Is it steady or moving astern, the captain yelled out. The lookout replied, steady, captain, which meant we were on a dangerous collision course with that other ship. The captain then called to the signalman, signal that ship. We are on a collision course. Advise you change course 20 degrees. Back came another signal, advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. The captain said, send this. I'm a captain. Change course 20 degrees. The signal came back. I'm a seaman second class. You had better change course 20 degrees. By that time, the captain was absolutely furious. And he spat out, send this. I'm a battleship. Change course 20 degrees. Back came the flashing light. I'm a lighthouse. We changed course. It was a smart move, says Max. The wise captain shifts the direction of his craft according to the signal of the lighthouse. Let me say that again. The wise captain shifts the direction of his craft according to the signal of the lighthouse. And a wise person does the same. Are we going to shift our direction according to what the lighthouse tells us to do? Or are we going to remonstrate with him, throwing our weight around? Here's the big question of the day. Are you willing to change the course of your life and live by the flashing lights that Paul's words to the Philippians are signaling us with today? Don't ignore them. Paul says, when no one is watching, live as if someone is. Be joyful in the Lord. Only harbor a grudge when God does. So show patience and forbearance. The Lord is near. Pray twice as much as you fret. Don't worry. Be anxious for nothing. But by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When you can't trace God's hand, trust his heart. Keep praying. The book of life is lived in chapters, so know your page number. Think the right things. Love God more than you fear hell. 
live the right way. And as the text promises, the peace of God will guard you and the God of peace will guide you. In the final analysis, in the midst of the storm, look for the lighthouse. Focus your life on Jesus because he is closer than you think.